Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Rory. And I'm Jay. And this is Midnight Chats, an Octivigant companion show where we sit down with your favorite paranormal authors, investigators, and researchers to have a chat about their work, the phenomenon, and all the strangeness in between. And on this episode, we are joined by author, researcher, and ufologist, Grant Cameron. Yes, indeed. And I have never heard somebody talk so fast in my entire life. Like my brain kind of hurts because of trying to ingest all of the ideas that were uh, that he went through. Yeah. Uh, and the funny part is, we got to four questions. Yeah, four we got, questions. We got to four of our questions, so we had a lot we didn't get time to cover. And as a, a bit of perspective, if you, because I'm sure nobody counts, we write ten questions for every episode. To be fair, though, that does count the uh, what are you reading and what's next for you. Although, funnily enough, I didn't even get a chance to ask what are you reading because he went right into it. Yeah, the primary, like the the main question that we always ask, like the the icebreaker question, he we didn't even get to ask because he just bulldozed right into a story and kind of gave us a a synopsis of the book. Yeah, but I mean, that said, I mean, it was interesting hearing it uh, in his oh, own absolutely. words. He has, uh, I mean, you could just tell he's he's been in this field for so long. I mean, I, I, I tried to write down the names of everyone he mentioned. I just stopped this place. Like, Man, you know everyone. Yeah. You know basically everyone in this community. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I thought he had some interesting ideas. And on the whole, I mean... Like I said, man, you, you could just see the experience and what he was talking, you know, experience with this field. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I would say it's definitely obvious that he has ingested a lot of information in and around this field. Take that how you want. But yeah, no, so he has a couple new books coming out, which we had a chance to uh, talk with him a little bit about. And one of them sounds particularly interesting, the UFO Sky Pilots, just because I think it's fascinating that some people are allowed to joyride the craft. Yeah. I mean, that we uh, maybe that's what that was. Well, yeah, if that's what's happening, I love it. Let's, let's just get, to, let's get into it. All yeah. right, let's go. line with Grant Cameron. Grant, thank you so much for giving us your time this evening. Well, thank you, Nick. Thank you for your interest in what I do. Of, of course, it was uh, fascinating. I was very, very interested when uh, I, I noticed the Mount Shasta book that we ended up covering for our show, especially because it's very difficult to find books about uh, kind of the work that South American contact groups do that were, you know, written in English where you know, us plebeians could easily access it and read it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually did two books on Shasta. So I, and it all came from an experience. I didn't, I, I didn't even want to go to Shasta when, when the whole thing started. I don't know if you want to hear that story, but it was um, in most of my stuff in my UFO career were things that I had no intention of doing. And I just sort of got sucked into it. Like, uh, 
the Wizard of Oz, you know, being zipped up and thrown into the land of Oz. So that, that's my career has been like that. And Shasta was like that. I had no no intention whatsoever going to Shasta and sitting on the side of a mountain and meditating for three days. I mean, that was the last thing I thought about doing. And uh, it was just that I had a friend who helped me edit some of my books who was a Latino and from Colombia and she thought this was great and she went with all these other people from Mexico and South America and across the United States and they sat on this mountain and I figured well she helped me so okay I'll do her a favor and I'll go to California and I'll go sit on a mountain and that was um, when I got the message halfway across the country my assistant Desta was with me and she, her cell phone rang and it was Katerina Castillo my assistant who said oh uh, we got a message here um, through Anturel, from uh, through um, Ricardo Gonzalez, and Anturel uh, wants to wants you to know he knows you're coming to the mountain, and there's going to be a program sighting on Saturday night, which is their indication of they tell you exactly where it's going to happen and exactly what time it's going to happen, and uh, because they had opened some what they call zendras, we call them portals, but. They call them Zendricks because they'd opened a Zendra in 2014, 2015. Ricardo had. I figured, oh my goodness, I'm going to actually see, a, you know, going to see an alien, and I was all excited. And it was Wednesday, and so I started, I started doing the fasting thing because they, you know, they fast, and and I figured I got to get ready. And I actually preferred that somebody else would go through the, the, um, because I've had UFO sightings, and I'm really not interested in UFO sightings or anything like that. So I was sort of hoping that somebody else would go through, but I figured, okay, if I'm if if I've been chosen by this alien, okay, then I'll do the fasting. And I got there, and there was two contactees. If you if you know the process, so it's it's Mission Rama is the sort of the group that started 1974. That was the year before me, and they've recorded all the events that have taken place from then. All these different groups. I think there's 25,000 of these people around the world. And um, so when when I was um, uh, headed there, there was two of these. Um, now, what's the name they give to them? They're like they're like um, sort of channelers. They have a special name for them. Um, they, and they pick up messages. So what they do is if there's a message that comes through about a contact, there's going to be a sighting at a certain place in a certain time. They have to have two people inside the group who get the same message. And hmm. so uh, Ricardo had gotten the message and there was a woman who uh, had a PhD from Columbia University who also got the message. And she actually showed me the message um, in her uh, her notes on the Thursday that she was taking. It was all in Spanish, but it was 9.33. And uh, that's exactly what happened. I was sitting there and I was uh, watching this big circle of, I don't know, 100 people sitting around in a circle all meditating and Ricardo's walking around, he's looking at his watch and I was, almost felt sorry for him, just Ricardo Gonzalez, who's one of the many people who leads these groups. Cause I thought, oh, this poor guy, nothing's coming and he's, he's getting nervous and he's looking at his watch and stuff. And all of a sudden there's this flash over my head and I was sitting in a lawn chair and I had to actually sort of move back. I thought the lawn chair was gonna flip over. <laughs> and I thought, um, this is weird. It appears to be right over my head. And when I talked to all the people after, they all said, yeah, it was above your head. And I thought it was, it was weird. I said, it got to be above the group. It can't be above my head. And this thing started flashing and it flashed maybe seven or eight times. And because it was so, so high over my head, I actually sort of moved down a couple of times to sort of get my balance. And the big one happened when I wasn't even looking and these people were all cheering. It was, it was kind of weird. People are all cheering and yelling and, and stuff. And then after this, when these people showed me this 933, 
And when I saw that and saw that, the because the, she actually said to Ricardo, she was behind me and she said to Ricardo, look at your watch, Ricardo, look at your watch. And he looked at his watch and that's when I learned that two of these people had predicted 933. And that's exactly when this event happened. Although it wasn't a dramatic event, nothing like I saw you know, in 1975, when I was pretty close to the thing, it was sort of a flash in the sky. And all I could think, you know, because I was, I was anticipating a Zendra, I'd be in there with the being and the, the being would be talking to me and stuff. And then there's this flashing thing, which was nothing, nothing that I, you know, it was, it was spectacular, but it was, it was nothing. And I thought to myself, that's the best you could do. Because no <laughs> Zendra. That's the best you could do. And then Ricardo says to me, he says, so what do you think after it was all over? And uh, he got a message. He started to channel this message from Antarell and from the female, the commander of the craft. She and she um, was messaging as well. And he was sitting in his book. And that was the most spectacular part of the whole thing because it was it was pitch black. You can't see your hand in front of your face. And Ricardo's wife was holding the cell phone onto his little. He has this little black sort of uh, a notebook. And he had the book open. She had the, the thing so he could see. And he was in this trance and he was writing a mile a minute. And I said to my assistant beside me, Desta, and she's a channeler. And I said, Desta, look at that. He, he's, he's channeling. She said, no, he's not. He's just, he's just uh, doing automatic writing. I said, no, no, he's channeling. Look. And he started to go sideways on the page. And then next thing you know, he was writing right up and down the page. He was writing at, at a mile a minute. He's going, and, the, and he turned the page. He right now go, holy cow. And I, and I I'd got, had my camera and I thought to myself, why did I not bring my video camera to the to the circle? I could have caught that. That was the most spectacular part of the whole thing when he started this this automatic writing channeling thing in the book. I was just blown away. And then he read these messages and, and basically Antarell said, Grant didn't see anything, but he doesn't need to. He already knows. And that was true. I, I really didn't need to see anything. But the 933, that sort of made me a believer. And that's when I said, oh, I got to get this message out to the, the English speaking people don't even know who this group is. They have no clue. I said, mm -hmm. and I always thought this is my mission. This is my mission to record what these guys are doing. And and almost like anything else, you know, like politics or whatever, you have these inside fights where there's Ricardo and uh, Enrique Villanueva don't see eye to eye on a number of things. So they have their own groups and they come there. So I thought, well, I got to rate this book. And then I thought, nah, I haven't seen Ricardo. Ricardo is my friend too. Or, uh, and so I've got to go, or Enrique is my friend as well. And they were across the road uh, doing their own thing. So I talked to one of their people and I said, hey, at 9.33 uh, 30, on Saturday night, uh, did, did you guys see anything? And they go, oh, yeah. And they started showing me these things about the, the aliens were there and they were the people, you know, high aliens and small aliens. And there's stuff in the bush and they, there's a, they had pictures also. And I thought, oh, my goodness, we were sleeping compared to what was going on. And right across the road, they were like maybe 500 yards from us. And that, that's when I said, well, I'll go to Ricardo uh, Enrique's the, the next year and I'll record what happens at his group and then I'll write the book to make it balance so I'm not part of one group. And then a bunch of stuff happened at uh, um, Enrique's group. So I ended up writing two books about it. And then I wrote about uh, the portals, which I think is uh, a pretty important topic. This this idea of the idea that they may not be flying here. They're popping in and out. And that's that's how this thing works. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, that is one thing that we've often discussed is, um, I guess, what the base assumptions that we often make about the UFO phenomenon, specifically like they come in craft, they're using some form yeah. of propulsion when we don't have a terrible amount of evidence to say that either of those things are true outside of we've seen craft. We don't know how they're operating or what those objects really are at the end of the day. 
Yeah. And, and in the end, what I always say, because I've been around so many experiencers, like I say, with the, um, you, you, you've got to go to the experiencer who's dealing with the intelligence behind the phenomena. You can look at all the lights in the sky you want. You can count them. You can look at their shapes and their colors and their speeds and their sizes and all that kind of stuff. And all you are going to determine is, yeah, there's something flying around in the sky and it probably is and our stuff. But you're not going to learn anything. You, you can't learn. You've got to talk to the people who are interacting with the phenomena. Mm -hmm. And then you start to learn stuff. And for example, I, I pointed out numerous times, there's this big argument. In fact, the MUFON conference next year, I haven't lectured in the States for quite a while, but I said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do this lecture because it's about uh, good and the bad. Are the aliens good and bad? And that's one of my favorite subjects. And I always say, if you take a look at the um, the fact, I always say the greys did not appear in 1961. I say the reptilians didn't appear till till 1980s. And if you look at the Mission Rama groups, there's 25,000 of these people, and they have all sorts of experiences around the world every year. You hear these reports of what they have. They I've yet to see them ever report a gray or a reptilian or anything. Their beings are these uh, almost like angelic. You know, they have the long hair. They're wearing the robes. They're you know that kind of thing where you start to see the the uh, idea of the people because this is a very religious sort of thing and that's what you get the even um uh brandon fugel who runs skinwalker ranch and george knapp also said the same thing mm -hmm. that it, the phenomena is reflective and uh brandon fugel actually warns his people when they go on to skinwalker ranch be careful what you're thinking in your head because it's reflective so if you come in there with a very bad attitude you're going to have a very bad experience. Or George Knapp said, the people who had the worst experiences were the people who were carrying guns, the people that were the macho guys that figured they were going to hunt the skinwalker. Those are the guys that had the bad experiences. And that's when you start to see this reflective idea that we are part of the phenomena we're looking at. And that's where you see the, the Mission Rama people. You don't see any greys. You don't see any reptilians. And then you start looking at is, is the, the gray, as some people interpret, because you're in a state of fear. So if you're going with a state of fear, uh, then you're going to manifest that. Even uh, at the end of his life, uh, Mac was talking about that, where um, grays are fear and, and, and um, what's the other thing? Fear and um, confusion. And then the reptilians, and I've had this experience too, are people who are very high energy, who are uh, very sexual, uh, interested in, in sex, very high energy people. And that the uh, then you have the etheric beings, like the the energy beings, are seen by these sort of sort of religious people, or you see the the Mission Rama people, and the idea that we are part of the experience we have. It's not like we're a victim and we we end up in in with some alien or some other alien, or even a, I just did a lecture yesterday where I referred to if you go and look at the the humanoid reports from 1947 till 1961 when the Greys appeared. Uh, what you see is aliens with helmets over and over again, bubble helmets and hmm. a, a silver helmets and helmets with hoses going down into backpacks on their back. And you look at that, you see it's these, the science fiction stuff of the 1940s and 1950s that is reflective because nobody now re reports an alien with a helmet. Mm -hmm. But in the 40s, it was 40s, 50s, it was very, very common for people to describe these, these beings with helmets on, glass bubble helmets on. That's fascinating. I mean, it. Uh, so we we started our show with some of John Keel's work. Uh, so I'm, some of what you're saying there definitely echoes some of his ultra terrestrial theory. Uh, with that yeah. in mind, I guess in your conception, do you think that there is an argument to be made that these various manifestations are uh, the product of different types of entities, or do you think that they are all expressions of some sort of shared source? 
Well, I I think you have to go back to um, the well. I say share source, but I would say that you have to go back to get to the priorities right. That we've through history we've gotten everything wrong all the way through. So we said 1492, the world was flat because it appeared to be flat. The sun went around the earth because it appeared to go around the earth. And there's, there's 5,000 stars because there appeared to be 5,000. It's what uh, is called naive, real, naive reality, where we sort of believe what we see and these things all fall apart one after another after another. And I think uh, I had a, two download experiences that were very dramatic in my life. I've had a lot of them, but two, one was in 2012. That's when I got the consciousness download that made me shift away from government documents and the presidents and that just gave it up and, and moved another direction. And the other was 2016. In 2016, they basically said to me, not only is what you've got wrong, it's exactly the opposite of what you think. And what they basically, they pointed out 24 different things. I'm walking down the street. I'm madly writing this stuff down as it's coming in my head. And they're saying, is it this or is it this? And they would, they would basically say, for example, is it one life? If it's one life, then that's one, one set of rules. But if it's multiple lives, everything changes. And then the big one, that's the one we're talking about here, is, is the world made out of little nuts and bolts? If it's made out of little nuts and bolts, that's one world. But it's made out of consciousness all the rules are going to change all yep. the rules and that's what i say is you got to get the basic premise and that was that the the original quantum physics guys were all realists they all believed that consciousness was primary and then what happened in the middle of the 20th century was that richard feynman came along and 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 broke everybody from the philosophical implications of all this quantum physics stuff like the the nobel prize from this year for physics was given to the guys who proved that spooky action at a distance is actually provable in a lab. They won the Nobel Prize. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff where, where Feynman says, shut up and calculate. And then they started to use the quantum physics equations to calculate, to build electronics and all the equipment we have in the modern world. But don't worry about where it came from. Don't look at the philosophical implications. You're just wasting your time. You're never going to figure it out. And that's where we've got to go. So to me, Consciousness is primary. Everything's made out of consciousness. Everything's vibrating. Consciousness, my understanding, well, this is my guess, is that consciousness as it started was not moving. It's very still and it's quiet. And then when the consciousness moves, then uh, the illusion starts. And, and everything is a form of, of, of vibration. So we're at a lower vibration. The beings are coming in at a higher vibration. They can lower their vibration, come in, pop out, or as I point out, you take a look at the Leslie Kane experience where she's with the physical medium and this mm -hmm. hand appears and she touches the hand. Well, the hand comes in and then the hand goes out and it appear, and materializes and then it dematerializes. I think it's the same sort of thing that they're able to come in, they're able to go out. And the way I look at the universe is uh, there's a couple of people. One was uh, Mark Sims who uh, had an experience where he uh, wrote a book and then he disappeared. And he hasn't really done much UFO since he wrote the book, but the book was his experience with an alien that actually was inside his body for 13 days and gave him this sort of a pattern of how things work. And it was the whole idea that things start very small from, from insects and you work your way up through 15 stages. And when you get to the 15th stage, you're making galaxies. And it's the whole thing is it's a development, almost like Michael Newton, which is something I studied very, very uh, heavily back a number of years ago after I saw him lecture and was sort of blown away. And there was the same sort of thing that we're, we're moving through these different patterns and the universe is getting more complex, more knowledgeable, more grand, and we're, we're busy building this thing. So to me, it, the basic concept is uh, God did not create the heavens and the earth. God created the sparks of the divine and they created the heavens and the earth because it's all made out of consciousness. 
They're the, you, it's not like we have this illusion that God creates that, the, the material man and then puts the soul inside of him or puts the consciousness inside. And that's where you get these crazy ideas that people have with the AI. Or we're going to take the consciousness and we're going to put it into, into a machine. It's all consciousness. It's all vibrating. It's all it, the, 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 the Easterners who are using meditation to get in the field and got these answers were basically right 5,000 years ago. It's this idea that, that or as, as, uh, uh, Jane Roberts, who started the New Age movement with her channeling in the in the 60s and 70s, uh, Seth said, "You manifest everything around you. There is no other rule." Or as John Wheeler said, "There is no out there, out there. It's a participatory universe." And that was the guy who was supposed to be Einstein's successor at Princeton, and that's what he basically said. And so all these big quantum physics guys, the early quantum physics guys, had this idea that realized that that consciousness was primary and that matter really wasn't matter. In fact, they said that, you know, they would actually say what we think is matter is not matter. I think Niels Bohr, who got the Nobel prize for Adams said that, you know, we we're making these mistaken beliefs and that's, that's how it works in this field is if you understand, want to understand the UFO thing, you've got to stand, understand the 5% of anomalies that are taking place in the, in the world, because if the world was, as people say it is, as science says, these things would not happen. There would not be any UFOs. There would not be any ghosts. There would not be any paranormal phenomena. The fact is, if these people are telling the truth and this stuff is right, then something in our scientific understanding is wrong. And that's why we look at, at these, these weird phenomena is that's where the Nobel Prizes are going to come from. That's where the discoveries are going to come from because it's indicating to us that something that we have is wrong. And we've made so many mistakes, even up into the last century. We think we're so smart. Even the last century, people all know the debate about uh, about evolution, the big debate in the in the courtroom about evolution. But most people forget about the debate that was done about about galaxies. 1925, uh, it was Hubble versus I think uh, Shapley. I think was the guy's name. He was the top cosmologist at the time, studying stars and and the evolution of of the universe. And this big debate took place, and they were basically uh, Hubble said, "I've I've discovered a second galaxy. This thing I call it Andromeda." And they were saying, "No, no, it's a it's a it's a, a a cloud of gas inside the Milky Way. And this major debate went on and they were refusing to believe. So if you take a look back then, it was Bohr and Heisenberg and uh, and, and uh, Einstein, all these people believed there was only one galaxy. It wasn't until 1925 that it was actually sort of confirmed that there was a second galaxy. And now we've got two trillion galaxies. Yeah. So everything, it's almost like everything we believe today, a hundred years from now, people are going to laugh that we actually believe this kind of stuff. We have this, we got to get rid of the ego and realize there are things that we're, we've got mistaken and it's the anomalies that are pointing us in the direction of the things that we've got wrong. Hmm. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned your 2012 download experience and we did yeah. want to ask a little bit about that. Um, so I guess, what was it like for you going from a strictly nuts and bolts materialist view of not just the UFO phenomenon, but reality and into uh, the information, well, into the worldview that was fostered by that download experience? Okay, I, I would be summed up by, I did an interview with a guy by the name of Jerry Pippen, who was very famous at the time. He's now passed away, but he was a very famous interviewer at the time. He used to go to all the conferences and sit outside the the conference room and interview everybody and everybody knew Jerry and Jerry was actually doing, he did an interview with me when he was dying. He was, he died of cancer. He was a couple of days away from death. He was in his deathbed and on the cell phone doing an interview with me. But I remember when, when it happened, he said, I can't believe you've done this grant. I can't be believe you were the president guy. 
you were the guy who had the presidential files and all the stuff on the presidents. And now you've gone over to the woo side. And I said, well, Jerry, I'll tell you what, I didn't actually go there. I sort of got teleported there. And that's exactly what happened. Like I, like everything else, like I didn't want to see the sighting in 1975. Nothing that has happened to me really happened because I wanted it. What happened was I'd gone into this lecture. Colin Andrews was giving this lecture about crop circles. And it was about consciousness. And it was about the idea that the what, what they discovered, because Rockefeller gave him a bunch of money to track these crop circle guys. And he, he caught all these crop circle hoaxers. And then he would interview these guys and they would tell him these bizarre stories. Well, I'm sitting in the living room and then I got this idea to put the crop circle down and I couldn't get it out of my head. So I went and put the crop circle down and then he would uh, call and Andrews told the story that in the same field, there was a bunch of women meditating on the same crop circle that he was going to put down. And it was this idea that not only are the, the beings controlling the ones that they're making, they're controlling the hoaxers and telling them what to put down as well. They're part of the thing. So that was the lecture. And I had no interest in crop circles. So I, I was, it was at one of these big conferences that goes from eight o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. And you don't go to everything. So you look at the schedule during the day and you say, okay, I will go for this one. You want to go for dinner. Okay. This lecture here, I don't want to go to this lecture. We'll go for dinner at two o'clock when this guy's lecturing. And that's how it works. So I, I, I was by myself and, and I really didn't want to go to the lecture. I'm thinking, ah, I don't, I'm not interested in crop circles. And yet there was a big controversy because he had said that 80% of the crop circles were hoaxed. And there was this big controversy inside the UFO community. And I'd never seen the guy lecture. He's a famous lecturer. So I said, ah, I'll, I'll pay, pay the guy respect. I'll go watch his lecture and I'll see what's going to happen with this controversy. I'll see how he handles this controversy that he's in the middle of. And I went in there and I wrote a book called Contact Modalities, where I talk about all the different ways that you can get into the field, how people get this downloaded material. And, and you can go through various ways, hypnosis, uh, you know, meditation, head injury, trauma, childhood trauma. There's all sorts of methods that people use uh, to, to get this. And the one I have always used is meditation. So I'll do a lot of walking. And like the one I had in 2016, I was walking. So you walk for three, four miles, and then your, your left brain shuts down. That's what it comes down to. You have the left um, male brain that is creating this, it's the voice in the head and it's talking away and it's, 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 you know, it won't shut up and it's causing the noise and you can't hear the signal because of the noise. But when you do meditation or when you do hypnosis, you're quieting the brain, but you're not quieting the mind. You're quieting the left side of the brain. You're saying to the left side, we know you've got a job to do, but you know, we're, we're kind of busy here. Could you go for coffee and come back a little bit later? And then the right brain, the female brain opens up and it's in contact with the, with the, the universe and this stuff gets downloaded. So my way of doing it was I would daydream. So what happened in this lecture is I had no, I, I had no idea why I was even in the lecture. I'm just like, I was totally bored. I'm listening to this lecture. I'm thinking, well, maybe I should go across to the library, across the, or across the river and, and hang around there or do something else. And, and, and I just completely zoned out. And, and then that part of my brain shut down. And it was like, it happened instantaneously. It was just like a boom like that. And it was three things that I already knew. And you'll see this in a lot of things like, for example, the creation of the laser or the creation of the hologram. Both guys won the Nobel Prize. Both were sitting on park benches when it happened. And it was the whole idea. They're working on the problem. They couldn't figure it out. They couldn't figure it out. They couldn't figure it out. And then they go and the one guy was waiting for a restaurant to open. And the other guy was waiting for, he was watching a tennis game. And suddenly this thing popped in your head. So you quiet the mind, you give up and you leave the lab and you go sit and then you quiet, you quiet the mind. And all of a sudden the answer comes, you go running back to the lab and write it down. And that's what happened to me. It was three things that I'd already known and, and yet I had not put them together. And it just instantaneously put these three pieces of the puzzle together. One was a top secret Canadian government document that talked about the Canadian official had gone to the United States 
And American officials had told him a number of things. Flying saucers exist. It's the most highly classified subject in the United States. And uh, one of the items was, we've also been told by American officials that other things such as mental phenomena may be involved with the flying saucers. The Americans aren't doing very well because they've said, if we're working on it, they're willing to exchange credentials and talk to us. So that was the first piece. The Canadians were told in 1950 already that mental phenomena was part of the UFO phenomena. And the key to there is how would they know in 1950? The first aliens didn't appear till 1952 with, with the Damsky. But anyway, that was the first piece. The second piece was we used to chase around the former president of Penn State University, who was the chairman of the board of the Institute for Defense Analysis, which is a top military think tank, 14 honorary doctorate degrees. This guy knew exactly what was going on. We were trying to get him to talk. And at one point, he cuts us off. He says, look, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And the guy who was interviewing from Great Britain had no clue. He said, oh, I don't know. And he said, look, unless you understand about ESP and how it works, you will not be taken in by the control group. Very few people understand how it works. In 1991, when he said that, I had no clue what he was talking about. It wasn't until 2012. And it's like, oh, that's what Walker was talking about. And the third one was two years later. Ben Rich is giving a lecture at UCLA, uh, engineering alumni. Uh, Jan Harson, who was the former director of, of MUFON, was there. He had seen a UFO with his brother when he was like 10 years old. He and his brother wanted to build a flying saucer. He became fascinated, became an electrical engineer. He was going to build a flying saucer. And so here's Ben Rich standing there and saying, we've got the technology to take ET home. He's going out of the building to get in his car to leave. And Jan Hartson realizes this is, my last, this is my chance to do it. He goes running after him as he's going out the door and said, Ben, Ben, I need to know, how did they get here? How does the propulsion system work? And he said, he turns around, he says, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And Jan Hartson says, oh, it means everything in time and space is connected. And Ben said, that's how it works, gets in his car and drives away. And then later on, uh, this wasn't part of the download, but later on, even Tom DeLong confirmed that, that he was in the Lockheed skiff with the head scientist for Lockheed. And that guy said, how does it work? How did they get here? That's all I want to know. And he was hanging around with Greer at the time. So DeLong said, oh, I think consciousness might be involved. And then the head scientist said, now you're talking. And that's all he wanted to talk about for 45 minutes. But these three pieces, the, the, the one from Eric Walker, uh, Eric Walker, Ben Rich, and this Canadian government, they all were put together at the same time. And it was like, oh, that's how it works. And, but I thought it was consciousness. Later on, I realized it was non-local consciousness. And that the idea has just grown and grown and grown and elaborated and got bigger and bigger as we went along. But it was it, it, the thing that I always tell people about these download experiences, if you talk to people who've had these, the thing that is the hardest to explain is to tell people that it came with absolute certainty there's no question this is this is how it works and it's almost like the the, the only thing i can refer um give you a metaphor for is if you for example you forget somebody's name you go to high school or something and you forget somebody's name and you're talking to somebody you say what was that guy what was that girl's name that used to sit up in the front of the class and then the guy says her name and you go oh yeah i remember it and that's mm -hmm. the way it was it's almost like there's a matrix all the information is in the matrix and I've seen it before. And so then at one point, it's like I get a glimpse and I see this thing and I go, oh yeah, that's the way it was. I was like, oh yeah, that's how it works. And it was, and it, it just was, I just gave up everything. It was so powerful. I, for two days, I, I was walking around and had no clue, you know, what, what, what end was up. And I was just, I was just sort of fascinated. And it was this overwhelming feeling that I'd finally figured it out because what had happened was in 1975 i had the first sighting the first night flew right in front of the car and the second night it flew right at us flew right at us and then it made this left-hand turn and it sort of flew off and i was thinking to myself as it was flying away i'm going and it was pretty close i'm looking at it and i'm going wow that could be that could be aliens from another planet i was just wow and then i'm thinking about 
have? What are they doing? It's like they weren't doing uh, anything because they were in this small town in the middle of Canada that had nothing, it had no industry, it had no weapons, it had nothing. And I'm thinking, what's it doing here? Like it didn't make any sense. And so that was my my lifelong quest was I don't know what I saw in 1975, but it had, somebody had to know. That's why I went after the president. That's why I went after the head, the officials at CIA and got involved with all these guys and trying to get the answer. Somebody's got to know what's going on here. And so when 2012 came, it was like, this is your answer. It was indirectly told me, this is the answer. This is what you're looking for. And I made the shift and, and I make the joke that in 2012, there was Colin Andrews who's talking about it. Then I had the download and there was nobody else. So you see how the UFO phenomenon morphs because there was nobody talking about consciousness in 2012. I was ridiculed. I'm still ridiculed by a lot of people in the UFO community that lost my mind. But now you see people in the UFO community, even though they don't know what the heck they're talking about, are using the word consciousness because they know it's a key word. It's one of these, these bait words that you've got to use and, and they have no clue uh, what it's all about. 2012, there was nobody talking about consciousness, and now it's starting to make its inroads. It's starting to to get accepted, and you can see how the the phenomenon is is developing. And that you know, eventually down the road, we're going to understand what's going on because people are actually getting to the bottom of of what's going on. In 1975, when I started, there was just UFOs, and we thought they were aliens, and that was it. There was none of these other phenomena. There was none of this discussion uh, the way it is now. Everything was by snail mail. Mail. There was not this instantaneous communication. It's moving a, a, a hundred miles an hour now compared to what it was doing in 1975. Oh yeah. Uh, so Grant, you yeah. mentioned that you've been that you've you've communicated with some other people that have had those download experiences. What are besides that feeling of absolute certainty? What are some of the other similarities that you've observed between your experience and other people's experiences? And if you had to speculate wildly, do these download events come from a common source? Okay. Um, there are a couple of things. I mean, it comes extremely fast. Um, most people will say, I was writing as fast as I could. For example, The Wizard of Oz. Uh, the Wizard of Oz came in a spontaneous download to the guy, his name escapes him. He's reading, he had four, four sons, and he was reading them a bedtime story. And all of a sudden, the idea started to come to him. And he was madly writing and he was he was writing on the back of envelopes. He had no paper. He's trying to find paper to get the story down. The same as J.K. Rawlings. Uh, J.K. Rawlings got all seven books of Harry Potter all at the same time. She was on a train going from Manchester into London. It was delayed. She fell asleep and had a nap and she woke up from this nap and she said everything was in her head, all the names, all the places. And she said, and I didn't have a pen. And it was this idea. I was like, write it down. And I find this that it, when you have these things, you have to, it's like a dream. You have to get it when it comes because it, it will fade like a dream and it'll fade away. And uh, so that's one of the, the, the things. But uh, where it's coming from, this, I think it's the most important part, is that's this idea about the field, that there is um, um, a field. And I say, well, where is the field? I mean, it's, it, and if there's no time and space, how big is the universe? I mean, it could be just a dot. I mean, just uh, it could be nothing. The universe is, is here. It's all here now, this sort of thing. But one of the things that I noticed about this thing is um, the, the as as to where it's coming from, um, forty percent of all people who have had UFO experiences, according to the Free Survey, if you're familiar with the Free Survey, they they talked to three thousand UFO experiencers who claim to have interacted with uh, non-human intelligence. Forty uh, percent of them say at one point during their experience, they knew the answer to everything in the universe. And I actually talked to some of these people. They'd say that and I'd say, well, let me ask you a question. How do you know there wasn't something like number six, seven, eight on the far side of the universe they forgot to tell you about? 
And they'll, then they say exactly what I said. They say, I'm not sure. I just know. I just know that I knew everything. And when I was coming back, I said, oh, I'm going to remember this. I'm going to remember all this stuff. And then it faded as they were coming back. And, and then all they could remember was the fact that they knew everything. In, in the, at one point, they knew everything in the universe. Now, that's a big statement to make. But the thing is, if you take a look at near-death experience, the survey that was done with near-death experience people, they say exactly the same thing. 31% of them say at one point during their experience, they knew the answer to everything in the universe. And that comes to this idea that there may, as some theor theoretical uh, models build it. There is only here and now. There is no past. There is no future. There is no time. There is no space. It's all here and now. So when you're doing a remote viewing or any psychic thing, you're going within yourself. And, and that's where John Wheeler, the, the guy from Princeton said, there is no out there out there. And the, the idea is that it's all within you. Or there's a Sufi expression that, that, John, that Stephen Greer always uses. You see yourself as a puny form when within you, the entire universe is unfolded. So if you're doing a remote viewing, you're not, your mind isn't going over to, to Egypt. It's going inside your mind where everything is, and it's just accessing that material, and it can do it at an extremely uh, fast rate. So this is this idea that everything, everything is accessible, everything is, is already invented, and you get this stuff with the, uh, I think Tesla used to talk about that, that he would never uh, build anything until he had tested it in, in his mind that he would see this and the alternating motor he saw going through, he was in Budapest with this other guy, they're walking down and suddenly he got it and into his mind and it came to him and he drew it in, in the, in the sand, in the dirt to this other guy, he drew the alternating motor. And that's what you see is this, this thing where it, it comes and it comes with this absolute certainty. And um, you can even get, um, I did a whole book called tuned in the paranormal world of music where I looked at musicians and their downloads. And I say to musicians, so where do you get a song from? And they go, I don't know. I just sit there and wait for it to come into my head. Exactly. That's how it works. <laughs> you sit there and they're, they're very right brain. So musicians, uh, they could, they're able to shut the left brain down. In fact, I, I point out in, in that book, I point out that the vast majority of the major musicians could not read or write music. All the Beatles couldn't, the Stones couldn't, uh, Barbara Streisand couldn't, uh, uh, you know, it just went on and on and on. None of them could read or write music. Even Paul McCartney said, I've never done a scale in my life, nor do I ever intend to do a scale. It will ruin my my, my ability to write music. And that's the thing, they wait. And a lot of them, uh, Michael Jackson talked about the fact that he was embarrassed to put his name on the songs because he said they did not come from me. And you'll hear this from musicians all the time that it just came or the, and it's always the most famous songs that they got like sting. I can't remember his 1983 was a song. Yeah. I think he was making $2,000 a day. Even a couple of years ago, he's still making $2,000 a day. He said, I wrote that in like uh, five minutes or, and then you take, uh, uh, if you, if you're familiar, I'm from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, where a lot of famous musicians came from and the guess who came out of here. And they were doing a song, if you know their song, American Woman, which was number one for three weeks in, in the United States. Yeah, I think they tell the story of how that came. They were in Mississauga, Ontario, and Bachman had broken a string on his guitar, and uh, 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 Burton Cummings was in behind the set. He was buying records from a guy. This is 1968 or 1970, I think. And um, so then he's buying these records and all of a sudden he could hear that Bachman was playing and he's, he's playing, he's testing his, his guitar. And he said, I gotta go, I gotta go. We're, the second set is starting. He goes running back up and then Bachman starts playing the riff for American Woman. And he says to Burton Cummings, he says, sing something. He goes, American Woman, stay away from me. And he sings, he sings the thing. And then they realize that there's a kid in the front row of the audience 
who's got a handheld tape recorder. This is the, when the handheld tape recorder is gone. And he's holding the tape recorder up and you can tell he's going to bootleg the show. So they tell the manager, they say, get the tape off the kid. So they go and they get this, the tape off this kid. And then at the end of the show, they're playing this tape. And at second set, they, the second set starts. And the American woman thing comes on. And they all look at each other and go, where'd that come from? They did not remember writing it, singing it, nothing. It was just there. And they said if it hadn't been for the kid with the tape recorder, the song American Woman would never have existed. And you see that in musicians all the time where mm -hmm. they'll say, uh, uh, Blowing in the Wind, they asked, uh, um, what's his name? Um, Blowing in the Wind, they asked him on, on 60 Minutes, how did, how did you get that? And he said, how long did it take you to write it? And he said, yeah, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes. And uh, <laughs> Dylan, Bob Dylan. And then they said, so where did it come from? And he goes, I don't know. I guess I came from that wellspring of creativity, I guess. It's like, and that, that's what people say. They don't know where it came from, but it all came. Like people say all the, all the lyrics, the song, everything came instantaneously. And people will say, Oh, that's the devil. I always make the joke. They say, Oh, that's the devil, uh, you know, in rock music. And I say, well, be careful what you wish for because battle hymn of the Republic came in the download. And so did little town of Bethlehem. So be careful what you're wishing for. And you see over and over again, you start to look at how many musicians had downloads it's absolutely incredible or the one the bit the, probably the most famous one was was um let it be by uh paul mccartney if you know the song to that he had he's he's having trouble he's just got divorced he's uh he's got a drug problem the beatles are breaking up uh harrison has already left the band and he's all distressed and he goes to sleep and his 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 mother who was uh uh died when he was 14 of cancer came to him and she said paul it'll be okay let it be and that's why he says when in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom, let it be, let it be. That's where the song comes from. And people don't realize where a lot of these songs come from that, that you think, oh, it's a smart guy. And that's what I actually learned. I did a study that they, they did a study out of Stanford. They looked at the 1500 smartest kids in California in 1915. They followed them their entire lives. And what they discovered was these kids with IQs that I think you had to get 140 IQ to get in. 25% of the kids had IQs of 180 or above, and they achieved nothing. They didn't win a single Nobel Prize. They didn't win anything. They were just ordinary people because very, very smart people aren't that creative. The creative people are like the, the D class who's, you know, they, they're in shop and stuff, and they end up having these uh, sort of creative moments that these, these kids... Uh, they would all get degrees, but getting a university degree is basically memorizing stuff. So these kids basically uh, weren't very creative at all. And you you get the idea that creativity is, to me, it, it's definitely, it's shutting down the left brain. It's shutting down the ego. And then you can access this field. And I believe that everything is in the field and it's accessible. That's fascinating. Uh, it, it reminds me strongly of some ideas that we have encountered in researching the, uh, specifically esoteric philosophy, things like the Akashic Record, uh, Jung's idea yeah. of the universal consciousness. It kind of seems like we have perpetually been re-arriving at this idea uh, every couple of centuries or so throughout all of human history. Yeah, and I think what it comes down to is there's different methods. So that's why I said like 5,000 years ago, the Buddhists and the Hindus already had it figured out. So how did they get it figured out? Because they're supposed to be stupid guys. And the way we look at it is, well, they, they're stupid because they couldn't build cell phones, but they could do meditation. They would sit in caves for years at a time and they would meditate and they would open up the field and they were picking up these, these, these uh, how the universe actually worked. And they put it in their thing and we, we ignored it until maybe 1950 when they'd start doing LSD and they, these guys started to uh, link into Hindu and, and Buddhist people. But everybody uh, has a different way of doing it. And you see through different cultures 
that uh, at some point these people have have picked it up, whether they're doing uh, eating mushrooms while they're scra scavenging for food or whatever it is, and they manage to get in the field and they write down this stuff. And so you see all these similarities across the the ages of all this stuff because it is accessible. It's all it's all there for people to access. And we're almost like the last of the party because we're very, very Western and we want everything yesterday. And it's a, it's a very materialistic thing. And and what I say about UFOs, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll bet my life on it, UFOs will be whatever the, the solution is. It'll be way less physical than you think it is. It'll be way more spiritual than you think it is. And a lot of people will hate that, especially scientists. I People always say, oh, UFOs, when they when the thing collapses, all the, the uh, religious people are going to go crazy. I say, no, no, it's not the religious people. It's the scientists are going to go crazy. They're the ones that are going to be fighting over the cyanide pills because everything they believed, they would spend $50,000 a year to go to MIT. And then suddenly it's like, what do you mean? That crap was actually right? And it's like, oh my goodness. And it, it's, it's going to be a shock because the materialistic paradigm is is crashing down now there's even like the if you've seen the the the, the um manifesto for post-materialist uh, science i mean all the scientists 400 top scientists have signed this and said no we have we are now going on the record and saying that materialism is not the way it works consciousness is is primary so you have all these various people and a lot of it comes through different, even methods of trauma. People don't realize this to say, oh, we want a good life. Why would God, you know, cause a, cause a accident? It's people who have trauma. Like for example, mediums, you start looking at mediums. A lot of them have childhood abuse issues. And, and it's, it's like, they're trying to shut out the world. They're trying to shut out this, what's happening to them. And suddenly boom, they're talking to their dead grandmother. And, and it's this, this concept, you start seeing these, these very distinct patterns that trauma is a big part of people who are very psychic and head injuries or car accidents. So people have car accidents and suddenly they're psychic or uh, people who have the, uh, the uh, UFO experience. I always point out with the UFO experience. It's always funny to me where the alien comes along and it, it pokes the guy. Hey, wake up, wake up. Mm -hmm. Hey, Nick, wake up, wake up, wake up. <laughs> and then, and then, then he wakes up and then you put their hand on his head and say, okay, go back to sleep. And I said, why would they, I kept for years. I was thinking, why would the alien try to wake the guy up and then put him back to sleep again? And it may be because they want him to dissociate. They, they want him to scare the living day. Let's guy, he dissociates and he can, he, he can go into the field easier. And uh, so that, that is part of it. And, and this contact modality thing, I go back and I take a look at all the inventions and all the, mu the, the musical stuff and all the art stuff. And I wrote a book called Inspired, The Paranormal World of Creativity. And you see it over and over again. It's this, it's this ability to get in the field. And because we're so, um, so much into the physical world and so ego dominated that we don't do it. So it's going to be a lot less physical than people think, a lot more spiritual than people think. It's going to be a thousand, at least a thousand times more complex than people think. The more I look at it, I've looked at it since 1975. The more I look at it, the more complex it gets. It's just like, you just go, wow. And the, the last thing is that it will have not have a hint of capitalism in 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 what, what they're doing, what the, the beings are are doing. And uh, so that's that's where I I stand on the thing. And uh, the the complexity... That's where I, I have this theory, and I was going to write a book. I eventually write a book called The Theory of Wow. So I always hated acronyms. So then I said, I'm going to have my own acronym, TTOW, The Theory of Wow. And that is the idea that everything that the, the intelligence is doing, and that's even paranormal phenomena, it, what it's doing is it just wants you to go, wow. It wants you to go, what is going on here? It wants you to think. It wants you to figure it out. It wants you to realize there's something going on here and 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 the the general world is not explaining this and 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 so i refer to things like 
when you saw the Nimitz case, when these the, the UFOs had the, the Nimitz over the Nimitz carrier, it dropped from 80,000 feet to sea level in seven-eighths of a second. So why would the why would the UFO do that? I mean, what is this, a pre-abduction maneuver? No, it's showing off. It's going, watch this. And the pilots go, wow, do you see that? And they just like, everybody's talking and it spreads around the world and everybody gets to realize like, wow, something's going on here. And the same thing as UFOs, I'll ask people like, you saw a UFO? And they go, yeah. And I said, well, how, how long was it there? I don't know, a couple seconds. So where'd it go? It just disappeared. And it's like, what was it doing? I don't know, it wasn't doing anything. And that's like, well, and that's the thing with me. It wasn't doing anything. And then, and then you get the thing. Did you think that it wanted you to see it? Yeah, I sort of think so. And, and you start to see this thing that, that uh, the UFOs, like, why do UFOs have lights on them? They have lights on them so you can see them. They want you to see them. They want you to report it. If they, if they wanted to be stealth and turn the lights off, they could go anywhere they want. Why do they wake people up and then abduct them? They, they want you to know. why do they, If they can block your mind on an abduction, why did they leave you this little sliver that you remember? Hey, something happened last night. And, and you start to look and you start going to regressionists and you start to try to figure this thing out. You see it over and over again, the crop circles, the cattle mutilations. This is all theory of wow as far as I'm concerned. Or I'm, I've got a book coming out called uh, Apports and Manifestations, where they drop stuff, where if you see with uh, psychics and physical mediums and with UFO people, I'll say to UFO people, they're telling their story and I say, hey, you ever have uh, something disappear and then reappear in the house someplace else or something fall out of the ceiling? And, and then the one guy says, can you hold a line for a second? He said, I got to go in the next room. He comes back with this whole collection of all this stuff that's been falling out of the ceiling and moving around and he's finding all over the place. And he just kept it. He, he just thought it was weird that all this stuff keeps appearing in his house and stuff like that. And why are they doing that? They just want you to go, wow. And they want you to figure it out. They, they're just trying to get across the idea that there is another world out there that is more complex and everybody starts digging into it. And even the thing with the metals, like people are all goo-goo about these metals, pieces of metals, the meta, meta materials. And I even went to Hal Putoff, who's the main guy. I said, Hal, this is a ports. You, you had it in your, you happened in your lab with Yuri Geller. You know this is a ports. Why would a UFO comes across the galaxy and it flies, it flies through and avoids black holes and, and, and solar systems and stuff, and it gets here. And then it gets here and little pieces start falling out of it. Come on, give your head a shake. There's no pieces falling off. Like they're dropping this stuff on purpose. And, and it's, all the pieces are different. And they have these little weird things, like the isotopes are in one part of the metal. The isotopes are all messed up. In the other part of the metal, the isotopes are okay. And the scientists go, wow, what the heck is going on here? And everybody starts talking about it. And that's what I believe they're doing. They're trying to raise consciousness because you're going to get to a certain point where everybody's talking about it. And then everybody's going to make the right decision. And everybody's going to say, something is going on and it's not us. And there's we're not alone. And that's what they want us to, to realize. And then we're going to start to to figure it out, but they can't come and do our homework for us. They can't land on the White House lawn, especially now in America. There's no way. I said to people, I was talking last night, I said, do you think for one second that in the United States of America, they are going to allow grays and reptilians to walk around the streets of America or open up a factory where they're using free energy and free labor and they can build it and make steel that's uh, 25 times better than ours and make cars for $1,000 that have super technology. Do you think anybody's going to allow these people? Because people want disclosure. And I said, well, what are you going to do? That's what we were asked by Dr. Eric Walker. He said, it's just curiosity. Admit it. You're just curious. That's all you, you're just curious. You want to know. I said, Look, what are you going to do when you get it? So you figure this thing out. What are you going to do? And that's true. What are you going to do when you suddenly figure out, yeah, they are here. 
we're not going to allow them in America. Then what do we do? It's like it's sort of like a dead end street. We're going to real We're going to we're going to realize that we're going to try to shoot them down or whatever stupid thing we're going to try to do. But they can't interact with us for that particular reason because you you can't do your kid's homework. You got to let the kid figure it out for himself. That's fascinating. Now, I mean, on the topic of disclosure, uh, so you've been in this field for thirty plus years. Uh, and so, with that in mind, we wanted to ask you about the modern disclosure movement. Uh, do you see the current situation as being notably different from efforts in the past? Oh, absolutely. How so? Do you think we're actually moving towards capital D disclosure, or is this just going to be kind of swept under the rug again? Um, it's it it's going to be capital D, but not for the public. So what what's happened is is as I always said, I made the joke. I I was with Steve Bassett. And he used to do his ex-conferences. I remember he said, we were on stage and all the people were there and he, we were on stage and he went from speaker to speaker. So when do you think disclosure is going to take place? Because he's always big on disclosure is about to happen. And then people say six months, one year. And they came to me, I go in 2042. And the look on his face was like, he could have killed me. You know, you say that in front of my, my, my all my people, you know, and embarrass me. And I never believed disclosure. Would happen. Not, I wrote a, I wrote an article called the 64 reasons. They've decided not to tell you the truth. And um, I, I absolutely did not believe it was going to happen. I, why would you disclose? I mean, if you've got the, the technology, why would, why would you put it out there for everybody to see? Or That's if you fair. don't have the technology, you've only got 70%, you put your cards on the table. It's a game of, of cards. You put your cards on the table and the Russians go, oh, thanks. You give us the 20% we need and uh, right. we're not going to put our cards down now. It's a, nobody's going to take the first step out. So I never believed disclosure. And then when the 2017, I was in 2015, 2016, I was starting to hear from Chris Bledsoe, who is now a, sort of a big figure in the UFO community. I had an experience with him, a bizarre experience with him in 2014. I knew it was the real deal. And uh, the government was watching him, everybody in the government. And he started telling me in 2016, early 2016, he said, high-level officials are going to come forward. And they're going to say UFOs are real, and they're going to force disclosure. And I said, oh, okay, when's this going to happen? He said, it's going to happen right away, right away. And then Hillary didn't win the election. And then I said to him, I said, okay, so what happens now? And he said, it's bigger than ever. They're still going to do it. They're still going to do it. Hang on. So I wrote a book in February 2017, and I basically outed uh, Jim Semivan, who's now public. I was the first to name him. And I basically said exactly what happened. High-level officials, Jim Semivan, uh, Justice, uh, Jim uh, um, Elizondo, all these people, high-level officials came forward. They said UFOs exist, and they were going to force disclosure. Now, what's happened there is that they have they've made the move, and we actually had a negotiation here with the um, with the Canadians, where I was negotiating sort of on behalf of the Canadian uh, Parliament, and with Elizondo and Mellon, and they wanted us to do the same thing that happened in the United States: use the military, uh, get on military committees, and then get the military committee to say this is a threat, and then they get money, and then uh, they open disclosure. But the Canadians had said quite clearly. They didn't want that route. They wanted to go on a scientific route. So they were going to give it to the science advisor, to the prime minister of Canada. That's the way they wanted to go. And I remember we went back and forth and we said, we don't have military committees. The committees can't spend money. You're talking about stuff that we can't do in here in Canada. You don't know how the Canadian government works. And we tried to explain that. And then we went back to the thing. It, we're going to go with with um, with uh, the, the scientific view that once the, the all these parliamentary guys come forward, they're going to ask for the for a scientific investigation of UFOs. And I remember Chris Mellon saying, that's that's the poison pill. I'm out. And that was the idea was in the United States, they're pushing this threat thing. And that's the way you get it. So if you say, oh, we want you to investigate UFOs, the, the parliament, the parliament, 
Congress has got so many things to look at. There's so many things for money. They could care less. It's, it's not my job. It's not the Air Force's job. It's not my job. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to have this stupid UFO issue or whatever. But then if you have it a threat and you say, oh, you're going to get eaten and, and you know, all this stuff's going to happen and they're, they're, they're mutilating cattle and they're abducting people and all this stuff. And you get these, these guys absolutely scared to death. Then they say, okay, how much money do you want? And that's the way they've done it in the United States. But what I've warned people now, uh, so I've dealt with most of these people is, and I've written about disclosure. I've said the government is disclosing. They've been disclosing since 1950. They've been doing this slow disclosure. I don't care what Mellon says. Mellon can say all he wants. He says, no, it's bottom up. It's baloney. Uh, my friend, uh, Bob Emmenager was given the job by the U.S. government to do a documentary in 1975. It was called UFOs, Past, Present, and Future. The government gave them all sorts of weird stories that nobody had heard before to put in there. And then they asked them in 1983 to do another documentary that the government has been gradually leaking, but they want to control it. So you don't want to spill the milk. You want to slowly release this story out. So what, what's happened is that they, they, they've got it to the committees now. And, uh, but you see what's happened, I say to people, you guys are getting fooled. You guys are getting taken. You're all pushing and saying, yeah, we want this. We want this and cheering Elizondo and all these guys on. And I say, what do you know now that you didn't know two years ago? All you know is that there was a briefing to the intelligence, the, intel the intelligence and house committees in, in the House and Senate and that they were given uh, classified briefings and that these guys believe it's real. They saw videos and stuff. You haven't seen any of the videos. All they've told you is there was 144 sightings and one was turned out to be a natural phenomena. And we can't tell you what the 144 sightings were. End of story. So I said, what do you really know? You know absolutely nothing that you knew before. Everything's going to happen in the, in the it's going to get sunk into the black world. All the money's going in the black world. It's not going to be made public. People are going to think, oh, they're going to tell us what's going on. No, it's, you see, it's all happening. Even if they have a, a hearing, it's going to be in, 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 uh, in, 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 in classified because it's the whole deal. They're playing this deal. that is, it's, a, it's a national security issue, and they're looking at weapons. What the um, military wants to do is they, 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 because it has this consciousness interface, and I've got a book called, uh, coming out in, uh, next Wednesday called The UFO Sky Pilots. And it's all about 35 people who have flown the craft. And they all sort of came to me one after another, and they told me the story. But, and there's a consciousness interface. So you, in order to get the, the craft to fly, you need to put your hand on a paddle, and you got, you got to get this thing to go. And they can't, they've got a craft that's completely intact. It'll fly, but they can't, they can't make it go because they, they can't, they've got no consciousness interface. And so um, I, I said, you know, that what's going to happen is all this stuff's going to go in the black world. They're trying to figure it out. All the white world people are going to talk about it and they're going to get this stuff because in the black world, they have not figured it out. They've got hardware, they've got bodies, but they can't, they can't get the thing to go off the ground. They've got, you know, ideas and stuff like that. But I, I'm one of the people that believes they really do not have much technology. It is very sophisticated. Even Eric Davis, who's the top sort of uh, guy who's been talking about crash flying saucers, who's part of the government has said they, they take it off the shelf every seven or eight years. It's there. They can't figure it out. They stopped the research in 1989. They take it off every seven or eight years, look at it and say, no, we still can't figure it out. It's still too far ahead. They put it back on the shelf and this has been going on since 1989. And, and that's the, what's going to happen. So all that's going into the black world, all the money's going into the black world, it's all going to be there. And it's the same game. So because the way it worked with the U.S. military is they, their, their attitude is we get it first. We get to build weapons out of this and then we'll pass it down. And the big one they always use as an example is GPS. 
they invented GPS before. It was a military thing before, and then we handed it down to the public, and now you guys benefit by GPS because we developed it. So that's that's the way the military attitude works, is the highest level secrets are military secrets. They are never going to release weapon secrets because it's like the atomic bomb. If you build the atomic bomb and the Japanese are five days behind, it's game over. Five days is enough to win the war You because it's all called lead time. How far are you ahead of the, the, the opposition? So if you use your secret weapon, if the how long is it going to be before the opposition can build that secret weapon? And the UFO thing, if they can build it and, they, and the Russians are 50 years behind and the Chinese are 50 years behind, it's game over. They have to basically surrender because we we control the secret. They can't build it. Uh, they can't build it. You can have the ideas, but it's called lead time. So the highest classified secrets are weapon secrets. And this is all falling under weapons. That's what they want. That's why they went to Skinwalker Ranch. The whole program was the OSAP program, the, mm -hmm. the AAWSAP. Yep. It wasn't the ATIP program. UFOs were really, not, I say, not a big part of the program. What they wanted is the, this guy from Defense Intelligence Agency went on to see Skinwalker Ranch and he sees this object, this metallic object that was floating in behind all the people and he was blown away that and, and he, he was the only guy who could see it and that's when he went and he pushed to get his thing but what they're trying to do is they were trying to do the ports and the manifestation stuff on the on the the skinwalker ranch because what happened is you know the story about the bulls they took the bulls yeah. the prize bulls and they put them inside a locked trailer so if you u.s defense intelligence you look at it and you go Oh my God, if we could do that, if we could put stuff inside locked trailers, or if we could do if in the Skinwalker Ranch, I maintain they took a, a piece out of the Skinwalker Ranch book. And that was you told the to, to, to old story about these these guys that that took the hitchhiker home with them. And yep. these guys were special forces. They were armed and they were going down and they were hunting the skinwalker. And they got stopped by this phenomenon. And the part they pulled out of the book was. They, they ran into this sort of force field where it turned cold and then they moved away and then they went towards it again and they were all frightened and they moved away. And then they told down the story. The beginning of the story starts. They got a voice in their head all at the same time. They all heard the same voice in their head. And it said, leave. You are not welcome. And that's the part they left out of the book. And so if you're a U.S. intelligence, you say, boy, would we love to be able to do that? Put voices in people's heads and stuff. It's all got to do with weapons. That's why they were there. That's why they spent 22 million bucks. It really wasn't about UFOs. It was about all this weird stuff that was going on at Skinwalker Ranch, that if they could figure out how that stuff works, they could develop all sorts of weapons and all sorts of intelligence assets that would help the U.S. military. That's fascinating. I mean, it, it is... Uh... A little sad that it, we have such a hard barrier between progress and the rest of the species being uh, the constant fear and need for war. Um, now, but I did we we are running up on time, and I did want to uh, have a chance to ask you about your upcoming book about the UFO sky pilots. I know you just mentioned that. Um, yeah. Would you be willing to give any sort of rundown about what we might expect sure. to find in that book? Sure. Uh, I, the first woman I talked to me in 2013, they said, "Are you still going to talk to Pam Dupuy?" I was in Phoenix, and I said. Yeah, I guess so. This that's good. She's coming to the house. I go, I didn't know what it was. She comes walking to the house. She says, Oh, I'm doing a remote viewing and I was abducted. And then yeah, and she's in her 70s or whatever. She's talking out of her. And then she gets halfway through and then she says, Oh, and I was flying the craft last night. And I went, You were what? She said, <laughs> I, was, I was flying the craft. And I said to her, You were flying the craft? And she said, Yeah, I'm flying the craft. I said, They let you fly the craft. Now I could think about was Saudi Arabian women. At that time, we're not allowed to drive in a car without a man in the car. And I'm thinking, you know, they, they can't, women can't drive a car in Saudi Arabia and they let you fly the craft with no insurance and no instructions. Just you want to fly a craft? Yeah. And then she said, I said, they let you fly a craft. And she said, yeah, I have flown three different models. And I said, how do you fly a craft? And she said, oh, you do it with your mind. 
And that's <laughs> when I suddenly realized why they'd put me in contact with this woman. And I go, oh, that's and then and then so then all these people started to appear. Like if you look on the internet, there's really nothing about people flying crafts. It's very, very rare. These people almost like they were they were intended to come to me. I started to get them and they go from witnesses to a lot of them are women, um, just people on the street. And, and they go all the way up to, I've got um, a guy out of San Francisco who was a 747 United Airlines pilot. I have uh, the guy in, in, in David who was out of uh, Los Angeles, who was uh, flew F-16s. It was a, in, in Iraq, was a uh, US, former US Air Force colonel, retired. Uh, he had it, and I'll tell you his experience. And, and, and they're, they're all saying the same thing, but it, has, it still has this idea of the plasticity, that you're part of the experience. So the experiences are basically the same, but they touch different things. So you come into the craft, and people will describe this other weird thing that, that Hal put off says, boy, I'd like to understand how this works. So the craft is 30 feet across, and they walk inside the craft, and they look, and the thing is just like the size of a football field. And then they look outside and it's like 30 feet across. And they look inside, it's the size of a football field. And that people describe and help put off said, boy, would I like to understand how they do that. How you can make the inside of the craft as big as you want. It's a TARDIS. And, um, <laughs> so they go inside and then basically uh, like the US, the U.S. Air Force colonel told me, he said, I'm inside the craft and there's somebody behind me. I don't know if it's aliens or and I don't know if it's human beings, but I'm standing there. And then the, some voice behind me says, okay, go ahead and do it. And then he says, I don't know what to do. And then they say, you know what to do, just do it. And then he looks and there's a panel there and he goes and he puts his hand on this panel. And he said that the, he realizes that the craft, he's in contact with the craft. The craft is alive. This is critical. The craft is biological, it's AI, it's made out of biology, it's grown, it's alive. He said, I realize the craft is alive. I become one with the craft. The main message of the aliens, I don't care what anybody says, the number one message they have is oneness. That's the number one message. You become one with the craft. You and the craft are exactly the same thing, like the same mind. And then whatever you think is what the craft does. So he says he puts his hand on the panel. And he said it was like suction cups on an F-16, whatever that means. And he's got his hands on, on, the, on, the, on the panel. And it's, suddenly he's flying the craft. And he's going, oh, my goodness, he's flying the craft. And he's flying it. And then he takes one hand off the panel. And, and he figures the craft's going to stall. And he's waiting to put his hand back down. And it doesn't stall. And then he takes his second hand off. But he leaves it two inches above. And he's going to slam it down if, if the thing stalls. And he's got his hands off the panel. And he's flying the craft. And so people all tell the same story. They come in the craft. They're told to do it. They don't know what to do. They're told to do it. Then they, they put their hand on a panel or they put their hand on a ball. They put their hand on a panel on the wall and they can see in three, they can instantly see in 360 degree vision. They can see 360 degrees and they become one with the craft. And the one I described is Ron Johnson. He's out of uh, uh, Salt, uh, the Salt Lake City area. And he had the experience where he, they, he said, they said you could fly the craft. And then he sits in this chair and then he, he puts his fingers in these, these holes. And then he, they say to him, he says, well, what do I do? And they say, it's all within you. This is this idea. Remember I had this idea of the, mm -hmm. the universe. Is he said, it's all within you. Just think where you want to go and you will go there. And he said, I would like to see the Milky Way from a distance. So if you take a look at that, that is like 50 to 70,000 light years. In, in distance from where he is right now. He said it took one second of intense G-force. One intense, and he said he looked out the window and there was the, the Milky Way off in the distance. And that's where I say, if he went 50 to 70,000 light years in one second, 
there's something wrong with our idea of time and space. Wait, we're missing something in, in this whole thing because yeah. this guy's telling the truth. And everybody will say the same thing that they're told. You imagine, just imagine where you want to go. And that's where you'll go. And that's what you see with out-of-body experience people or with people who are doing remote viewing. If you have the out-of-body experience, you go and you say, oh, I'd like to, to go to Nick's place. I'd like to see Nick sleeping. Boom, instantly you're there. And you're you're there, and that's the whole thing. There's no time. It's not. It's non-local. You can go wherever you want instantaneously. Same as remote viewing. You can go and to Jupiter in like in the second and be there. There's no time and space once you get in that field. That's fascinating. And now I'm going to be worried about out of body people watching me sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and that's that. That's where I start looking at abductions because uh, I say, how many people have ever seen somebody get abducted? And the answer is basically nobody. And so the question is, what's really going on? And you get something like uh, Betty Andreasen, where she talks about her experiences. They wrote six books about her. And she talks about this one where she's going here and she, they take her here and they take her there, all this sort of stuff in this craft, that craft. And then they take her home in this ball and they drop her off in the backyard. And she says, oh, I was so glad to be home. I went running in the trailer and I saw, I saw my husband was still sleeping. And then I went to my bed and I saw and I, I was sitting on the side of the bed. And so I got in, inside my body and I went, I laid down and went back to sleep. And that's this whole deal. There's an abduction experience, but what's really going on? Is this really a physical experience or is it something that's happening inside? Is it all within our head and it, they're inside, we're inside the head and it's all this consciousness thing where they're manipulating consciousness and there really is no physical type event. It's like, it's so strange. That's where it gets, I say it gets a thousand times more complex because you start looking at these things or I even talk about, you know, people will say, oh, they're getting raped. And then my question when I ask experiencer, I say to experiencer, hey, I got a question for you. Was he wearing any clothes? And then the person will, will usually say, uh, yeah, what he was wearing, but they all wore the same thing. Or they'll say, no, they weren't wearing any clothes. And then I say, don't you think that's unusual? They didn't have any clothes on? And they go, yeah, it is kind of unusual. I never thought about it before. And I say, I'll ask you another question. Do you have any sex organs? They say they're raping our women. Do you have any sex organs? Do you see any sex organs or nipples or, or, or belly button? And they go, no, I didn't have any uh, sex organs. And then, and then I've never had anybody say they had sex organs. And that's the whole thing. Then you start saying, what are we really looking at? What are we, what is are we standing in front of us? Is it really a biological being that is, you know, by reproducing on another planet or what's actually going on? And it becomes more and more complex and you see more and more weird things that you've got to explain as to why is this happening? Why is that happening? And that's what leads you when you go down those little roads, that what leads you to the answers as to what we're missing, what we've got wrong in science, because we definitely are missing some pieces. We we're shuffling the pieces around and we're trying to make it all work. We think we've got all the pieces. We don't, we've got a lot of wrong pieces from other puzzles and we've got to admit that something's wrong and follow the anomalies and listen to the experiencers because they're interacting with the phenomena and they have the answers. If anybody has the answers, if they don't, have the answers it's just a waste of time and i know the government is watching them because chris bledsoe said to me he has everybody i said did you ever tell the government about how you fly a craft because he flew the craft too he said oh yeah i had a general come to me one time from the u.s air force and i explained the whole thing to him so you see this that the government is going to these people because they realize because they cannot control the phenomena they have to watch the people who the phenomena is interacting with that's fascinating well thank you so much for that answer yes. uh we do have just one last question and it should be yep. the easiest one uh, what's yeah. next for Grant and where can our listeners find your work? Okay, well, I have these these two books, one on uh, ports and manifestations and the one coming out next Wednesday on the Sky Pilots. My, my, uh, I have a, a thing where I help people publish books that are uh, experiencers. I just show them how to do it and help them get their own book published and stuff like that. It's, it, it's all connected publishing. And that's all one word. It's all connected. That's like the the oneness idea. It's all connected publishing. And uh, pre, um, Presidential UFO is my Facebook. 
and I have a big uh, white uh, YouTube site, uh, White House UFO uh, um, blog, uh, YouTube, and I'm now doing articles on a blog. Uh, so White House UFO Blogspot, and I'm doing a lot of articles there. Uh, so that's what I'm doing, and I have maybe six books coming out, but two are coming out right away. And that's what I do is I just try to recreate as much as my material, try to get as many as my files out there, as many stories. I always maintain, uh, if you want to keep a secret, I'm probably the last guy you want to tell. I'll tell everybody. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so, so much for your time. This has been very this has been very fun and very enlightening for us. Uh, yes, thank you very much. A fascinating answer. So uh, we hope you had a good time, and we'd be happy to see you back someday. But uh, sure. I think we'll give you back the rest of your evening. Thanks again. Okay, anytime. Just let me know. Yeah.